think it's y'all got a mind of its own. That's the blender I was using this morning. Guys, we're struggling, all right, this morning. When the college students leave us, apparently we can't function as adults. <laughs> we've got no sound. We've got a coffee machine that has a mind of its own. And we've got Tong's rigged nightstand, which is a clipboard and a shoelace, uh, which I'm not even for sure how I'm supposed to use this. What am I supposed to do? When the college students are gone, we are a mess, all right? Um, but this is actually really exciting to be able to continue to meet. Used to be when our college students were out, we would be either canceling or having a small event at the house. But uh, to have this many people uh, who are graduates uh, and or we have the UTA college students with us. But we're just going to treat you UTA college students as adults this morning. Um, so that'll be the one chance all year you get to be an adult. Um, but anyway, it is really exciting to be able to still meet even though we've got uh, uh, all of our college students, 100 or so, out at fall camp. And so that's pretty exciting. 100 from our church. They've quite a, uh, a bit more than that. Um, I think the only other announcements that maybe we missed were that uh, we have small groups going on uh, that started last week. Three different small groups, two that meet on Tuesday night, uh, one on uh, biblical literacy and studying through Genesis and Deuteronomy. Is that correct? Genesis? Genesis? Okay. Uh, one on a book called Gray Matters, which is about cultural consumption and interacting with culture, and then a Wednesday night on the Holy Spirit series that we're doing. So if you're interested in that as uh, an adult, non-college student, uh, let us know and we'll give you more information. It's a great way to meet other adults. Every other week we hang out in the community doing something with each other and with the community at large and then on the other weeks we, uh, we actually do the, uh, the small group itself, okay? So um, I really don't know how to do, <laughs> to do this. Uh, so, um, okay, well, yeah, I mean, who cares? Uh, let's record. No, you know, I don't want to be too too difficult. Also, I don't know how to work this. I've been using the Britney mic for a long time. Oh yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay, great. Well, we're gonna continue on uh, a sermon series that we've been doing for a while uh, on the Holy Spirit, and um, you know, we're gonna start a class on this in about three weeks and so for those of you who really want to dig more into that class uh, the five topics that the class is going to be about the first one is going to be the history of the Pentecostal movement second one is theology of the Pentecostal movement third one is Pentecostalism in the black church fourth one is Pentecostalism in the global church and then the fifth one is Pentecostalism what to make of it okay sort of like moving forward in our day and age uh, what are we going to do and so that'll be uh, when we start meeting at the Denton Arts Council building uh, in October, and we'll do those in the morning at 9.45, from 9.45 to, uh, to 10.45. Alrighty, um, let's see, I think I, I had one more announcement that I wanted to make, and that is that um, uh, we've kind of moved away, uh, and we'll make this announcement next week. This probably impacts more the college students than you guys, but I'll go ahead and, and say it anyway. But we've sort of moved away from our relationship with the Jesus Project Ministries uh, that we've been going to in December for the last five years, and we're going to kind of head in a new direction with that. And so we're looking at possibly going to Houston and or Memphis this December. We have some contacts there with uh, some low-income and inner-city schools. And so anyway, if you have contacts or know of some people in need of help, remember this is 50 non-skilled college students. So 
It's not like we can do a whole lot of like building and plumbing. This is more like watch kids and you know, senior ministry, bilingual ministry, that kind of thing. Please let us know. One of the staff people, Leslie R.I., Ryan, uh, Kurt, um, but it looks like we're going to move forward with probably doing Houston in, in December. And so that's, we just want to make sure that as we move away from the GS Project Ministries, which has been uh, great for our church, um, we move kind of into something pretty quick and, uh, and be able to kind of still use the momentum we have. So if you have any questions about that, certainly let me know. Um, and uh, yeah, from there, we'll, uh, we'll keep making that announcement. And, and that's going to be fun to be able to continue doing that. All right. So. Today is baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, and um, I have quite a bit of time set aside at the end just to take an opportunity to affirm and challenge each other uh, in accordance with what we're going to talk about. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is a very, very controversial idea. We're not going to get into the theology of it simply because it's kind of outside of the scope of what this sermon series is about. If you want to talk a little bit more about the theology of it, or maybe you grew up in that kind of environment and maybe you're seeking to understand it better, the, the class that we'll do in a couple weeks is a much better way to talk about that and learn about that than in this uh, sermon series. But I will tell you this is primarily the theological difference that separates the Pentecostal church from uh, other evangelical churches. Also, like with so many issues, it's also the issue that separates various Pentecostal churches from each other. And the main kind of idea comes from a series of about 10 passages that you can look up on Bible Gateway pretty easily if you just type in baptism and Holy Spirit. And these 10 passages seem to very loosely and vaguely talk about baptism of, with, or in the Holy Spirit. Now those three modifying words change a lot of how people have interpreted what exactly first Jesus and then some of the apostles even meant when they talked about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so we're just not going to get into much of that, but I will tell you that over the years, um, the Pentecostalism movement itself has changed in its thinking on a lot of these things. Uh, one of the, the biggest myths about Pentecostalism, for most of us who didn't grow up in it, is that Pentecostals believe that speaking in tongues is a sign of being filled with or baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, in reality, from the very beginning of the Pentecostal movement, Pentecostal leaders were against this way of uh, showing that you were baptized with the Holy Spirit. It was only very small fringe movements that believed this, and virtually nobody who was really talking about baptism with the Holy Spirit was advocating this as a sign. But I still think, hear a lot of people who, who didn't grow up in Pentecostalism who think that Pentecostals believe you've got to speak in tongues to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, most Pentecostals still don't believe that, uh, particularly ones who kind of know quite a bit about their faith. The whole idea of baptism with the Holy Spirit at its core is the idea that once a person receives the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit resides within them, that they can have a sort of second blessing or a more full blessing of the Spirit in their life, which will manifest itself in the spiritual gifts, manifest itself in miracles, a, a fullness and a closeness with God, possibly speaking in tongues, and a variety of other things that are very experiential. And that's really all that the whole idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Now, some evangelicals, I would say most evangelicals, disagree that there's some second blessing or some 
fullness of the Holy Spirit apart from the Holy Spirit simply residing in us. All right? And that's as much as we're going to talk about the theological parts of it. If you're interested, again, take the class, come and talk to me, and uh, we'll spend some more time on that. But in recent years, I've noticed a lot of Pentecostals and Pentecostal theologians reinterpreting the history of this statement, baptism of the Holy Spirit, to mean something that I'm absolutely on board with. And that is sort of an awakening, or even sometimes a reawakening, of the Spirit's gifts and work in our lives. Now, I think this overlaps really well with what many of you have said in your own faith journey, that, you know, I became a Christian, but it almost like it took a few years for it to really catch on, okay? That I had some time period in my life where I got really serious about God. Or maybe a time period I lost that seriousness and sort of regained it. In my mind... This is what a lot of Pentecostal theologians are calling being full of or baptized with the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit sort of is reawakened or uh, for the first time really discovered. It's kind of like this. You know, you become a Christian and you certainly don't immediately and miraculously overnight begin to walk by the Spirit. Of course not. It's like my students in my classes who are really used to lectures. I try to lecture them the first couple weeks from PowerPoints and then slowly transition them into discussions. And I try to work in those discussions in those PowerPoints so that they can get used to my teaching style, which is all discussion-based. Well, I think it's a silly analogy, but it's what I got. Um, how the Holy Spirit works with us. A lot of religion, when we first start off, is emotional and it's rules-oriented. And as we kind of get comfortable with and follow the Spirit in our lives, we begin to embark on an entirely new way of living. And I want to talk about one of those aspects today, uh, which I think is very much a sign of being baptized with the Spirit, is that it completely changes how we relate to people, particularly you know, to our close friends. So this reawakening thing, um, I will say one more thing, because while our churches are super interdenominational, meaning that people have come from a lot of denominational backgrounds, not non-denominational, which often just means we used to be a Baptist, but we don't really call ourselves Baptist anymore. <laughs> Um, we are really interdenominational. We really had people sit up and raise their hand based on what denomination you grew up in. We'd have Catholic, we'd have Protestant, we'd have every version of Protestantism under the sun. If there is one thing we probably don't have a lot of, it's Orthodox, but that's because we're in the West and that's not near as common, right? Uh, not to mention the fact that we have a lot of people who just didn't grow up in church at all. And so because we're interdenominational, we come with a lot of different backgrounds, and some people are really uncomfortable with that. They really want us to sort of put out a doctrinal statement. And a lot of times, not playfully, but kind of playfully, we basically just said our doctrinal statement is the Nicene Creed, which happened around the mid-fourth century. <laughs> so in a, in a way, that's ignoring the Reformation, but also it's sort of reminding people that we're coming back to the first and most important Christian statement of uh, unity that's ever been made, and we're kind of sticking with that. Uh, and anything beyond that is up for debate. However, we do have a strong, at least, presence of Church of Christ people in our origin story. And uh, while some of those folks aren't around anymore, it still is a part of our history and DNA as a church. And without going too much into the Church of Christ uh, way of thinking, which can sometimes be very cessational, meaning that the Spirit doesn't work at all anymore. 
They also have some really interesting and unique ideas on baptism. So the whole idea of baptism of the Holy Spirit seems like an offensive idea. One of the ideas which I want to challenge but not talk much about it, because that's easy, um, <laughs> is the idea that somehow the Holy Spirit only comes on us after we've been uh, baptized. And what ultimately happens with this idea is it not only doesn't make much scriptural sense because we're being baptized in the Spirit's name and the Spirit's been at work well before this baptism process, but also it seems to kind of run aground on the idea that the Spirit doesn't begin to really work until we've been baptized. Now certainly there's something to say about the Spirit is only promised and given sort of full time to Christians, all right? But to say that somehow the Spirit only comes after baptism, and baptism is some rite or some commitment that's made, and then all of a sudden the Spirit comes, go back and try to read through Acts and find that order. And we've got a lot of ways to explain away what was happening in Acts. Well, the order was different because of this situation, that situation. Well, the whole idea that we receive the Holy Spirit as a response to baptism is an idea I think we ought to think about. Uh, and at least if you're going to believe that, uh, you know, understand how people could believe differently. And I just want to throw that in there to really rile up some feathers. Uh, so that's all I had on that one. But what I really want to focus on, and I would encourage you in Acts to go back and read through each of these groups of people who received the Holy Spirit for the first time. Because each one is very different. And some of the differences make a lot of sense. Okay? So for like in the case of the Gentiles who received the Spirit before they were baptized, there was a real main reason for that. And that was God was saying, hey, I've accepted the Gentiles. Whether you guys do or not, here's my proof that they're in. They've already gotten the Spirit. And it was a huge message to the Jewish people to say, I don't care whether you think they're in or not. They're in. And the story of Cornelius and Peter and so on and so forth. So you can, you're welcome to go back through those Acts passages and try to figure out the whole order of this repentance, faith, baptism, but it is confusing. But I will tell you this. I think the unified message of Acts in terms or in regard to the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit was working to rebuild the relational, uh, relationship and relational structure in Israel at the time. To open up doors to interact with and befriend people that people had no access to before. And when we look at it from that, a little bit more of a high level kind of perspective, I think that we can see that what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, that he will make you a witness to the world. We begin to recognize that, that going back to what we've been talking about these first four weeks, that the Holy Spirit is on mission and has an agenda, and we can individualize him as being this sort of like holiness maker in our life, or we can see that he's got his own agenda and we're welcome to join or not. But any of the work that he has for us is going to be in regard to that mission. One of the things we see is when he says he's, he's going to make you a witness to all the world, he was serious about that. The Spirit was going to open up doors for friendships among these people that were absolutely illegal in some ways. Not to mention, went across the whole secular, sacred, who you should be spending time with. And so one of the things that I think is missed from the Spirit's work in, in Acts is just how much the Spirit of God, when it came upon people, caused them to build substantially, substantially different relationships than what they had built before. And that's really what I want to focus on today. 
is, uh, is the topic and the idea of adult spiritual friendship. Because here, I have an audience now that's not college students, so I might as well bring this into the mix. And I believe that for many of us, when we get out of focus or out of college or have some major transition in our life, we've often got to rework how we're going to do spiritual friendship. Particularly when you get out of focus, where spiritual friendship is really organized along a hierarchical structure. You know who you should be spending time with. You've got the convenience of roommates. You've got your core that you're responsible for. Uh, and there needs to be a reawakening of the Holy Spirit working in our friendships. Because in my mind, the crucible of faith, the absolute, absolute crucible of faith, is, is friendship. The Spirit works primarily through our relationships with each other. As He reminds us of the Word, teaches us the Word in real life, not in our, you know, behind the scenes praying or when we're singing or through our own individual holiness, the Spirit works in the relationships we have. If you don't believe me, go back and look at the fruits of the Spirit. Every single one of them, with the exception of self-control, is about relating with other people. If that's the Spirit's fruit, then it's highly focused. Not even on our relationship with God, but on our relationship with people. And so that's why I mean that it's the crucible of faith. We tend to identify faith as individualistic, one-on-one, it's about learning, it's about knowledge, and yet the Spirit is working in the heat of the battle with us in our relationship with people. And, uh, you know, I just can't kind of think about it uh, outside of that, not as you study back through these fruits of the Spirit and, uh, and what's going on. So many of us need this as we transition into the adult life. Um, especially out of college, we need to sort of reorganize how we think about spiritual friendship. And so I want to give you some suggestions, and then I want to move really quickly into just letting you guys affirm and challenge each other as we discern uh, the Spirit's kind of, uh, of leading in our time together. All right? So you kind of be thinking about stuff that, uh, that you may want to tell uh, uh, our community as a whole. All right? So, I mentioned a couple of these impediments to spiritual friendships. But I think the big four are, number one, the older we get, the more our personality becomes pretty hardwired, right? So, I am who I am. My ability to relate with people who are different than me becomes less uh, flexible and more rigid. I just believe that. We have not only a stronger personality, but we have more interests. And our long litany of interest makes it also very hard for us to relate with other people who are pretty different than us. We're busy. We have a lot of stuff going on, and a lot of the stuff we have going on isn't primarily relational, like when we're young. It's task. It's doing stuff. It's stuff that doesn't lend itself to immediately being a very relational environment. A lot of you work in jobs 40 hours a week. It's, It's not a really relational environment, so to speak. So how to do relationships outside of that makes it very, very difficult. And then one of the easiest ones is just convenience. Most of us, except for me, don't have, you know, roommates, right? Uh, A lot of us, as we kind of graduate, the convenience of just being around a lot of people and a lot of different people lessens. And so the convenience factor of just having people around us all the time isn't something that, that we have the luxury of. Particularly people who have all the same interests and same life perspective. We're all of a sudden throwing around people, if we are around people, who are pretty different than us. Different age, different background, different life goals. So what do we do? 
It's very easy, and I think I hear this a lot uh, from some of the focus students, particularly when focus students uh, you know, are gone for a semester or they go take on a tough job, is it's like, well, nobody called me, no one befriended me. I'm like, yeah, well, part of that's because one of the main ways focus students spend time with each other is they just see each other a lot throughout the week. And it's, you're out of sight, out of mind when you're outside of that kind of bubble. Is that a bad thing? Not necessarily, because there's always a push and pull between focusing and spending time with the people around us and trying to really be open for opportunities to spend time with people outside of the body. And when in the focus environment, sometimes naturally kind of encourages people to just get with people around you as best as you can to kind of learn some of this stuff. So those are some big, I think, impediments. Um, the other one is that there are not really clear-cut roles. For those of you who are part of our college ministry, you know, you, you get into the working world and all of a sudden your roles become very vague. You know, when you were a small group leader, you were responsible for people in your small group. When you're a roommate, you had roommate friendships. But as you get out, the, the roles that are defined for you are not near as easy to figure out. And one, what that really ultimately forces you to do is always take the initiative and responsibility in your friendships. Yeah. That's one of the biggest things. Right. You just don't wait for someone to come mentor you. That's not real world. That's not adulthood. Nor do you go out and try to find someone necessarily to mentor. Sometimes that's going to be possible. But relationships tend to be a lot, more, a lot less hierarchical. Or hierarchical. I don't know which one. Just go into everyone you feel comfortable with. Um, and, and tend to be a lot less clear-cut. And, and that's just an impediment. That's just, it, just recognizing the environment that, that we're in. All right? So I want to give just a couple suggestions before I open this time up. And one of the things that Leslie and I talked about, which we probably will end up doing either this semester or next, is having just kind of a spiritual friendship seminar. As our church has gotten big and gotten big fast, it's become really, really difficult to know where to even begin in terms of building friendships with people. Because as you grow small and you kind of incrementally grow each semester, it becomes easier and easier to do this. But it's overwhelming for many of us when we have probably an opportunity for two or three people to meet with regularly every week or every other week to really build a friendship. Where do I even begin? Where do I even start? Not to mention the fact that the older you get, the more relationships you have in your past and history. And just keeping up with that is often enough. Uh, and so it, it just becomes really important. So I want to give you a, a few kind of suggestions uh, that I feel like come directly from Jesus' ministry. Number one, a buddy isn't always a friend. They're more like a dog. That's harsh, isn't it? Just saying. A buddy isn't always a friend. Sometimes they're more like a dog. Guys, we feel close to our dogs and cats. I feel like probably, and I know this is terrible, but I'm going to be more sad when my dog Asher dies than some of the rest of you when you die. All right? <laughs> I'm being honest for a second, all right? He's not joking. I'm not joking. <laughs> the emotional connection I have with that little guy is deep. But that does not make him a close friend of mine. He may be a buddy, and we have some overlapping interests, <laughs> like cuddling, okay? <laughs> And we have similar personalities because he does, he's rude and likes to hide from people and so am I. But that does not make us close friends. And I think a real big problem, the older we get when it comes to friendship, I think this is actually worse for guys, but it's still there for girls, is that we misdefine buddyship as friendship. 
there's a book that I take the interns through each year, the focus interns, called Elmer Gantry. And it's about this hypocritical uh, preacher, pastor. And one of the things that's really, really great about the book is all of the one-liners about how terrible he is at building true friendship. Two that come to my mind in particular, or he has this one guy named Eddie, uh, Elmer Gantry has this one guy named Eddie Fisslinger, who's just kind of like a yes man. And Kristen knows what I'm talking about. And she, uh, or he always is like encouraging Elmer. And, and, and one of my favorite lines is, Elmer always needed a valet for his virtues. Oh, just, oh. he always needed a valet for his virtues. Meaning he always needed someone around him telling him how good he was. That's a buddy. Someone who spends most of their time around you pretty much just encouraging. And it's not really encouraging. It's more just the shallow kind of you did a good job, attaboy kind of stuff. It's a buddy. You have the same interests. You're more just looking in the mirror back at yourself, which is what I do with my dogs. Project our human emotions on them. Another one, uh, and this one's more of a, 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 you know, the friendship's on the same plane. Well, uh, Elmer later in his life meets this Methodist minister, and they're both just so eaten up with themselves. Just think they're both the best. And they're not even listening to each other in conversation. They're literally, there's a three-page window where they're just talking at each other. And it's one of the most comical scenes in the entire book. And the author just simply says, they were lost in a mutual admiration society. Oh, oh man, I love that line. These people, it, they weren't relating. They were buddies at the most shallow level. They were simply talking at each other and in mutually admiring their own, you know, uh, uh, virtues. And we've got to be really careful in our faith friendships, in our spiritual friendships, not to have relationships that are simply buddy friendships. There's nothing wrong with buddies. We've got to have buddies. Sometimes buddies are the ones we spend a lot of our time with, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And, you know, we could get into that in kind of a more seminar conversation. But if our buddies are simply buddies and they're not really spiritual friendships, we're not really following the spirit in the relationships that we're supposed to be having. We're simply doing what's easiest and what's best for us. Uh, or at least how we think of what's best for us. So let me think, say kind of three things that I think are really important here. Kind of comparing and contrasting spiritual friendships to uh, what I think are uh, really not spiritual friendships. The first one is that spiritual friendships are always intentional. Meaning that there's a reason uh, and a purpose that I'm meeting with this person. It does not have to be a purpose or reason that goes back to I'm trying to help them. The purpose and reason is simply I have a calling from the Spirit or feel the Spirit's presence or I'm in a small group with them and so it would be great for me to get to know this person I don't know. It can be as simple as that in terms of being intentional. Too many friendships in the world, guys, are just haphazard. They just sort of happen. And, and not that, that friendships can't happen that way. They can. Uh, but often, at least when we're following the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is behind that just happen type relationship. I know it is with me and one of my closer friendships that I think is a buddy friendship, but also has uh, in some of its best days a spiritual friendship. Of a guy that just was working on my well behind my house, and the spirit just say, go over there and start working. I met Willie, unfortunately. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, has developed into a very slow-growing spiritual friendship. But, you know, it's still it, uh, most days a buddy uh, friendship, but I'm you know, still kind of working on that. Um, 
But it's got to be intentional. There's, there's a purpose behind it. Right. Too much of our way of thinking about relationship is so Disney. It's people falling into our laps or arms. Maybe that's a little bit weird. Like your friend falling into your arms. But um, it's haphazard. It just will happen if it happens. And so what that means for a lot of us is we avoid getting close with people until someone just sort of the right person comes along. We're just haphazard. We've got all this time and energy for friendship, but we're waiting for the right friend. What does that even mean? Okay, and our ideas of closeness are often really worldly in terms of their definition. I feel close to this person. This person gets me and understands me. You know, I, most of my friendships that have really challenged me are not from people who get me and understand me. They're actually from people who don't get me at all or don't understand me at all. And I'm not advocating going out and trying to find a friend that you hate, but I am <laughs> trying to balance you out on some of these really worldly definitions of friendship that have to do with me and my feeling and my well-being and not on a, on a spirit doing something. Because the guys, the way that God loves to work the best is often through those situations that make no sense, where we're weak and where God can show his glory and power by bringing together two people who do not belong together. And that's so much the story of the community of faith, is the Spirit bringing together a lot of people who just don't really belong. And if we only do friendship with people who are you know, convenient and, uh, and our buddies, we're going to end up having a homogenous church. And we're just going to have a bunch of people who are exactly the same. And we still want that. The Spirit's not going to work much there. That's just us doing our deal. And so we've got to be really careful. So intentional, which means that we're always going to be willing to take the initiative. Um, the idea that you know friendship should go two ways when it comes to initiating nobody that, that where did that come from 50 50 I mean yeah perfect world fine but even those of us who have had friends for a long time who've uh, been in marriage relationships we know there's roles and it's not a 50 50 thing that doesn't even make sense sometimes it's a hundred me and zero them maybe 80 20 and that's fine because we, we have different roles in our friendship and so this idea that someone needs to come and initiate with me before I have a friendship with them is an immature idea. You can initiate with anybody. I mean, you know, that's, that's not, some people are initiators, some people aren't, some people wait. Yeah, do they need to learn that and grow on that? Absolutely. But when I'm intentional with someone, that means I'm not waiting for them to initiate. Um, I'm going to go out and I'm going to initiate that relationship. We have so much freedom in Christ to be, begin to build very, very deep relationships with almost anybody. Uh, and, and that's pretty exciting because it's those relationships, yeah, that take work, but they pay huge dividends over the long run. Second one is that they're actually spiritual. Um, and too often maybe what, what we think about a spiritual friendship is that we're having all these serious conversations. But when you think about the spirit as working in the most mundane habits of our life, then sometimes spiritual friendships can become almost devastatingly boring. Which isn't a bad thing always. And boring is a wrong way of putting that. But we might talk about the most mundane things. And we've got to be careful with you know, the idea of friendship as being we're always having a serious conversation about something. Something that has to happen. That's not really a friendship. That's like counseling. And maybe you, you need to counsel someone. Great. But that's counseling. All right? And I certainly don't want a counselor as my best friend. Well, it would be fine as long as he's not counseling me every time we hang out. Um, so, uh, you know, spiritual friendships can handle the most mundane and the lofty versus just worldly friendships, which have a tendency to be, uh, you know, very interest based or very emotional or whatever else. The last one, and I think this one's already come out clear, so I'm not going to 
uh, belabor it. It's just the idea of, of relationships being challenging. Um, you know, my friendships over the years that have paid the greatest dividends in terms of the spirit working have been just challenging friendships for a variety of reasons. Whether because every time I get with this person, they bore me with all of their talk about housing stuff and what they like to do in housing. And now that's me, but back then, you know, when I was younger, I was just like, why do I have to talk about this? And it's like, that's because that's what they're interested in. What am I going to do? Ignore what they're interested in? To say what? Well, we're going to talk about something different? Or whether we're challenging because that person misinterprets literally every word I say, um, or comes away with not the right definition of what we were talking about, or whatever, guys. But spiritual friendships are often challenging. They're just not easy. And there's a reason for that. God has made us in his image in a variety of different ways, and then has given us the burden of, as he works through us in our spirit, reconnecting so that we get a fuller picture of who he is and what he's doing. And when we simply surround ourselves with people who are basically like us or easy to get along with, we get an incredibly narrow view of who God is. And so some of us, you know, when a relationship has become sour or boring or challenging or whatever it is, need to look for what the Spirit may be doing in that friendship. Because being in an intentional purposeful relationship doesn't mean we're friends for 150 years. There can be a season to that. But it does mean that we're invested and committed to it. And that those small little bumps in the road that have to do with our personality or our enjoyment or whatever else don't derail it. Uh, and so many friendships in our society are derailed over the most small things, right? That was what I was always so amazed at when, in Seinfeld, is they would treat everybody else poorly, right? And any little small thing would ruin their friendship, but like nothing could ruin their friendship with each other. And, and in reality, it doesn't make any sense. That, friends, those kinds of things, that's not how the world works. If you're that kind of person with other people, you're going to be that kind of person with those people close to you. But never mind, it's a whole other topic. I'm not trying to dog y'all's shows that you like. Friends and, you know, <laughs> uh, um, But let me just say this. And I've been saying this for years uh, now, and I really do mean it. Jesus, as he ministered to people, he gave them physical needs. He gave them bread. In our kind of current climate, many of us, that's not the thing that we start with uh, when it comes to... Um, showing people the power of God. Instead, for many of us, it's friendship. We are in a society that increasingly doesn't know how to do close friendship. And if you don't believe that, look at the largest world survey, the general social survey, of how many close friends Americans have. I just checked this, and it's gone down from 1.5, all right, in the early 2000s, to now the, uh, the Americans have now 1.25 close friends. Now, don't ask me the 0.25. That's statistics. It's not like someone's befriending someone who has no arms and legs or something like that, all right? But what's crazy about this statistic is that it includes marriage uh, uh, partners, which means that either your, your uh, wife or husband is your only best friend, which is not a good idea, or they're not even one of your best friends, which I think is equally bad. Um, <laughs> But what that means is Americans, don't get me wrong, millennials in particular have a lot more acquaintances and a lot more friendships. But in terms of close friendships, uh, and some of that might just be that their definition of close is incorrect and wrong. There's all kinds of things you could say about the survey. What I'm simply saying is that this is a really important need for us to mirror in our day and age in our society. It's what it looks like to truly have spiritual friendship. Right. And as those of you guys graduated from college and you're reworking this and rethinking about this, this is simply another wonderful opportunity for you to catch up with what the Spirit is doing in your life. To learn how to overcome some of those obstacles and barriers that keep you stuck 
without being able to build a friendship. Well, that person's too mature. That person's too old. That person has a different job. That person is different than me. Whatever. And allow the spirit to really work because I don't know another best first step uh, for, for in, in responding to the series than to begin to build a really intentional spiritual friendship so the spirit can work. So I want to take an opportunity to, in kind of response um, to the sermon, to just affirm and challenge each other kind of as we worship. And that's very much a worshipful thing to do because worship at the core is just putting God where he belongs and recognizing all other things in relation to that. And so one of the ways we can do that is simply challenge and affirm. Uh, and I really, um, I mean, you know, talking about your own personal experience is fine. And I think that's important. But one of the things that the worship team, as we talked last Sunday, we really want to try to get us to do is being able to speak more communally towards each other. So that it's not just my experience is this, but here's where I think we need to. And I know that's hard. And some of you guys, that's you know, high level. You're, you're trying to maybe step on toes by saying we need to do this. And that's why I think others of us can discern the truth. I mean, if someone says we need to do this better and the rest of us are looking at like, no, nah, I think we do a pretty good job of it. We can say that and that'd be fine. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.